is Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Chabot. All hands on deck for the Royal Navy in the Gulf, but have they got enough ships? The horrific scale of sexual violence in South Sudan and what British soldiers are doing about it. The South Sudan military attacked her home. She was with her three sisters and her family friend. They broke into the kitchen and they were all raped. And the MOD makes plans for the final frontier. There are no signs this week that tensions in the Gulf are subsiding. The latest today, Iranian media reporting the Revolutionary Guards have seized a foreign tanker suspected of smuggling fuel. Well, this week, the Royal Navy announced it's also sending HMS Kent to the Gulf. So, can the surface fleet cope? Well, joining me now is Naval Analyst Professor Eric Grove and our Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Professor Eric Grove, uh, what's the answer to that question? Can the Royal Navy cope? Well, it will try, and the answer is probably about, you know, just just about. But but it but it shows there is very little scope. I mean, after all, uh, Duncan, uh, um, uh, uh, which has been sent from the eastern Mediterranean uh, to the Gulf, uh, can now no longer cover the eastern Mediterranean. So, you know, in a sense, we are robbing Peter to to pay Paul. So, nineteen frigates and destroyers is just not enough. And the sooner that the the that the frigate and destroyer forces expanded, the better, but that won't be for some time. Christopher Lee, take us through what the Royal Navy and the Royal Fleet Auxiliary has on deployment in the Gulf at the moment and why HMS Kent is being sent. Okay, uh, Kent is sent to back up Duncan. Duncan was sent to replace Montrose. Montrose was the the ship, uh, if you remember, who got between the last Revolutionary Guard patrol vessels and a tanker. They've been working their socks off for just over a week. They need some rest and recuperation, and the ship needs some some tidying. So that's gone gone alongside. Uh, Duncan takes over. Kent, which is a very similar vessel, a frigate to Montrose, is coming, and that will be the eventual replacement for Montrose. It's a it's a progression, and and, and that's it. But. That's because of the situation at the moment. Now, if you got today's thing where the Revolutionary Guard saying, "Well, I'm going to be, uh, or we're going, we're going to be sort of, uh, sort of taking other ships into in, 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 in alongside, and we're going to look after them there," it, the whole thing may, the may sort of get into a, a, a difficult situation at the moment. What are the there's options? Montrose alongside. Is, so sorry, hang on, Mo- Montrose, Montrose alongside. Duncan's there. St Albans. Uh, sorry, not St Albans. There's an assault ship there. Uh, and in the Cardigan area, Bay, Cardigan Bay, and there are four uh, mine countermeasures uh, vessels there. So it's quite a it's, it's quite a lot there at the moment. Mm, if if things were to escalate, though, as you, you suggest could happen, what are the options for the Royal Navy in terms of ships? Uh, well, they're fine. Yeah, I mean, you can only operate a certain number of ships in that area. There is also a big command structure. Is that there's, a, there's a commodore who's also the deputy uh, commander of the American fleet in the region. Uh, he's there as well. He can size up the situation and say, I think we want the following, and he will probably get it if we've got the vessels. But they don't have necessarily to be another frigate, uh, or they don't have to be another destroyer, and you can make do by sending a ship which you wouldn't normally send. But the point is, at the moment, it's a big operation for the Navy. Do you know there are more than a 1,000 Royal Navy 
members of the Royal Navy operating in the Gulf at the moment in a, in a thing called Operation Kipion. And it's been going for some time. Uh, it's, a, it's a big place for, the, for the, the Royal Navy and has been for sort of decades. And so they, they know what they're doing, but they've got limited resources with which to do it. Mm. Eric Grove, uh, with the current surface fleet, how many operations can the Royal Navy realistically do at any one time? Well, it depends on the extent of the operation. I would say that if you're going to really reinforce the Gulf, you're going to have to withdraw from the Far East, although there's only a one ship or so there anyway at the moment. Uh, but, to, but to maintain something in Europe, you might have to run things down, uh, you know, in, in the... Uh, although, I, actually, I don't think there has been much there in the, uh, in the Caribbean for a while. I think Mounts Bay has been around there. But, yeah, I mean, it... It, it is very there is very little spare capacity indeed and if you want to do one thing properly you, you can probably you're probably not going to be able to do much else have you had any examples can you think of any in recent history where the royal navy's had to say actually we, we can't do it well the royal navy doesn't like saying no and it will try its best it will use royal fleet auxiliaries like the bay class etc you know for for uh, for uh, for maritime security duties uh, it, it doesn't like like to say no, but I'm afraid it's going to have to do so more, you know, more in the future if the surface fleet remains as as limited as it is. It can console itself with the fact that in the next few years it will have an aircraft carrier to play with, uh, with an increasing number of aircraft, one hopes. But that will require, of course, surface ships and so on to help screen it. So it's very much up against it. And when, and when Jeremy Hunt, the one thing I agree with him about, says, you know, we need more ships in the Navy. His father was an admiral, after all, who I knew quite well as captain of Dartmouth. You know, he is right. But where the money comes from is quite another matter. Mm. But if you put in context what the Navy is doing at the moment, you, you, you know, your Task Force South Atlantic, uh, Antarctic, Standing NATO um, Maritime Intelligence Operation, the Continuous Sea Deterrent, you know, the bombers, the, 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 four, the four submarines with the missiles. You've then got six Daring-class uh, daring destroyers, which Duncan's one of them, 15 frigates, and then you've got a whole load of small vessels. The other thing which you haven't got, and you almost need more than you need ships, is manpower. And that's the biggest problem at the moment. It doesn't matter how many ships uh, yep. the, the government give give the navy; they haven't got enough people to drive them. But they are still they are still apart from the Americans, the biggest operational carrier uh, navy in the world. Um, Eric Grove, uh, manpower and ships. How much more of each do you think the Royal Navy? Well, we know that you want more ships for the Royal Navy. How many? How many would be, would satisfy you? And in terms of manpower as well. Well, I think we ought to go back to something like 24 or 26 frigates and destroyers. Now, it has been mooted that with the Type 31, the new light, light frigate, that we might be able to get back there, but not for some time. I mean, it'll be quite an achievement to actually replace the Type the older frigates when they come out of service. But I would have thought the mid-20s. As far as manpower is concerned, well, 5,000 more people. I mean, they, they found that they need more people in the aircraft carrier than they thought they could get away with. Mm. So, so so there is a margin there which, need, which needs to be filled. Uh, it's a pretty large margin, too. The government... Uh, the you, can coalition only, and, you can only operate one carrier at a time because you haven't got enough manpower. That's probably true, of course. Yes, although there so is. So on an the manpower front, Eric, how many? How many more sailors? Five thousand. Hmm. But where they come from, heaven knows. Well, <laughs> and over what period? Well, this week. Well, the, well, this week it wasn't the deployment, but the building of ships that was brought up at Prime Minister's questions. Let's have a listen at what Labour MP and member of the Defence Select Committee, John Speller, had to say. All the major European industrial nations insist that ships for their navies are built in their own yards. Yeah, yeah. So as part of our legacy, 
Can I urge the Prime Minister to be a good European and follow their example and instruct the Ministry of Defence to build their new support vessels in British yards, securing British jobs and using British steel? to the right honourable gentleman that as he knows it is this government that actually brought forward our shipbuilding strategy to ensure that we are supporting and encouraging uh, shipbuilding around the United Kingdom. In relation to the Royal Navy, obviously the issue that he uh, refers to is, I understand, support ships uh, uh, and the Ministry of Defence is looking at the uh, future provision uh, is looking at the future provision of the, uh, of the building of those support ships in the future. We of course uh, maintain our position in relation to the building of, of uh, the ships of the Royal Navy. Christopher Lee, uh, listening to that, it doesn't sound like John Speller's wishes are going to come true anytime soon. Let's put it straight. John Speller is really talking about the uh, support vessels, not mm-hmm. about warships no. in, the, in the accepted sense of what a, war, a warship is. The other point... And, and the, Does he uh, have a point, though, that they should be British-made? Well, it'd be nice, wouldn't it? But I will tell you, that there's one particular point which he, he didn't bother to mention. Um, he said they'd be made from British steel. There isn't any British steel that can make those ships. Second thing, there's no capacity in the yards to to, to fill the yards up to be able to make those ships that he wants to be made. Um, you, if you take, for example, the, the, the Navy is getting rid of between 2025 and 2035 uh, the uh, Type 23 frigates. They've got to rebuild to get back to those numbers. They're all going to be built when they come in British yards, they're going to be using up most of the capacity in any British yards. And building a, a frigate is a totally different technique and takes much longer than, build, than buying a hull and turning it in, into a, an auxiliary uh, a store ship, mm. etc. So at the moment, does it make sense? Because the next thing is is he and other members of the House will get up and say, why aren't we doing this for better uh, a better deal? Why aren't we doing it for better trading money? And the answer is that if you go and get the Koreans to build you a small uh, store ship, you'll probably get it for half the price. Eric Grove, the Prime Minister mentioned the shipbuilding strategy to encourage and support shipbuilding around the UK. How is it working and how well is it working? Well, well, well. we have three competing designs for the type for the Type 31E, E for export. Uh, one from Camel Lads, uh, who, have, who, who have got aid, as far as design is concerned, from uh, from the much maligned BAE. Uh, one from Babcock, who, hope, who have got a plan for a rather larger Danish design frigate. And one from, uh, uh, from a, a German company uh, who would use Harland and Wolf and, and, a, and a Glasgow shipyard. The idea was to spread construction. I mean, uh, uh, as, uh, as And is Chris that working? Said, is that working? Well, well, it, we will see by we will see by the end of the year. The problem was they were hoping to get a ship that would cost a maximum of two hundred and fifty million pounds. Now you weren't going to get anything with any capability at that price, so they stopped the project, regrouped, put the put the tenders out again, and now, as I say, you've got these three potential tenderees. We shall see what turns up, but it's going to cost a lot more than two hundred and fifty million. Mm. Now, as far as the as the solid store ship is concerned, uh, which Chris was talking about, uh, there is a lot of pressure for it to be built in Britain. And one of the factors that MPs are saying is, look, if you build it abroad, you don't get tax and national insurance from the people working on it. And they worry that, in fact, that is not taken into account when you look at the total cost. And as far as the Koreans are concerned, as far as 
I know, Deuve pulled out. So if it was a foreign construction, it would probably be, ironically enough, in Europe. Christopher Lee, um, a debate was held uh, recently in Westminster about the shipbuilding, and it was pointed out that after the Second World War, the UK used to make half the world ships. Uh, it did. It had half. <laughs> it had almost, or seemingly in Europe anyway, the, um, the the shipyards that could work after the Second World War. It also had the shipbuilding capabilities in the numbers of people working. In 1947, for example, there were 700,000 people in, uh, working. 720,000 people working in British shipyards. Um, also, we had the contracts. Also, more people wanted ships um, uh, to be built. And what happened, about, started about 20 years ago, the contracts started falling off. And we're back to the same thing, like building motor cars. It was costing more to build in a British shipyard than it was to build elsewhere. What we're doing now is is holding on to the idea that you build warships here. And how you do it is still, is still an and argument. And is that the right thing to do, is it, Christopher, to, hold, to, to, to make sure that all British Royal Navy warships are built in the UK? Yeah, why build them as well? You don't have to. I tell you what, I'd love to see. I'd love to see the reemergence of a company like Vosper Thornicroft, who were great shipbuilders, who built back in, like um, Eric will tell us, about 30 years ago, a thing called the Type 21, the Amazon class, which was, which was, I mean, it would make a lovely royal yacht for somebody, but <laughs> they were very fine ships, very fine, and, and make them on the cheap. That's what you could call the new Type 26 when it comes along, an anti-submarine warfare uh, vessel. And that's what we want to do. Concentrate on what we can. But also remember, what do you want these ships for? So you're not just building warships and say, look, we, we as, as the present well, idea it, is that you build a ship, you have lots of compartments in it, then when you decide what to do with it, you put the gear in to do it. Uh, there's a certain sort of formula in that which doesn't work. Sit-rap with Kate Still to come, space, the final frontier, how the RAF is going into orbit. Tens of thousands of women and girls are estimated to have been victims of conflict-related sexual violence in South Sudan. Survivors find themselves rejected by their families and communities. Claire Sadler has been looking into the issue while in the country and a warning that Claire's report contains some graphic details. Conflict-related sexual violence is endemic in South Sudan. The use of rape as a weapon of war has been largely aimed at women and girls. The South Sudan military attacked her home. She was with her three sisters and her family friend. They broke into the kitchen and they were all raped together in one room with other family members watching. Uh, That's Antonia Mulvey from Legal Action Worldwide. It's lodged the first case against the government of South Sudan for sexual violence against 30 women and girls. Each has a horrific account. Christian Mikala is a UN regional coordinator for human rights. After the conflict, we had an upsurge in the whole of South Sudan where women uh, not only have been used as tools and uh, as weapons of war, but then what has happened after the conflict, they continue to suffer these uh, you know, forms of uh, violations that are usually gender-specific with uh, women and girls bearing the brunt of it. So it was widely, widely acknowledged that the, you know, the problem was massive. Women who've been attacked often find themselves shunned by their family and community. They suffer psychological trauma and many keep their experiences a secret if they can. 
Hazel Devat is UNMIS's head of field office for the Upper Nile region. There's a lot of community-oriented programming to look at how do you destigmatize um, survivors of sexual violence and how do you work with community so that there can be an appropriate integration. British troops have been playing a small part. At a community event, members of 3-9 Engineer Regiment have been demonstrating the self-defence skills they've been teaching to women in Malakal's protection of civilian site. Captain Ewan Irvin has been running the classes. First lesson, as always, folks, we're going to talk about breaking risk control. Girls were a little bit nervous at uh, first, particularly the very first time we got them in, because it was something new, they'd never seen it before. But uh, once you actually just uh, break down those little barriers, give them a little bit of confidence, keep it simple, build it up from there, they really uh, took towards it, especially when it came to the striking at the end, they really enjoyed that. My thumb is tucked in, my fingers are curled in, and I'm leading with the palm of the hand. I never expected for an instance we'd be doing self-defence classes, particularly in a setting like this, for local uh, uh, individuals, and it generally does feel special that you've got something that's a basic programme that can continue on and hopefully actually generally make a difference. Here's Hazel Devat again. It's an important aspect. It works to a level of empowerment that, you know, okay. there is something I can do, but I, it, it's, it's done in combination and not in isolation, and that is an important factor. Yes, I can undertake a level of self-protection, but I also, we take that alongside the training that we do for uniformed personnel, where we engage them on not to violate women. The crime of conflict-related sexual violence has been largely ignored in South Sudan. There's only ever been one prosecution, but law, the UN and other organisations are pushing for change. That was Claire Sadler reporting from South Sudan. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee was listening to that report. Uh, Christopher, it's clear sexual violence is still being used as a weapon in South Sudan and other conflicts around the world. How on earth do you begin to tackle it? Most of the time you don't uh, uh, succeed in tackling it um, because it's too easy to operate. And it's also sometimes it, it's, it's just a sudden, a local and a very, very quick decision. And a decision that's taken perhaps because that's the way they managed to do it. I mean, anybody who's worked in Rwanda saw that. Anybody who's worked in even the other Sudan, and Sudan itself sees that. And so that is the high priority, that you go to somewhere like the United Nations and say, this is a terrible thing, isn't it? And they say, yes, it's a terrible thing. How are you going to do it? You cannot send, because there's no authority to do so. You cannot send a military force, even if you find one, to be able to stop another military force carrying out obscenities like that. And Christopher, um, earlier this year, the UK announced the setting up of a new centre to help the UK armed forces be better prepared to prevent and respond to sexual violence and conflict. Realistically, uh, how much of a difference can that kind of training make? It makes an awesome, it makes an enormous training when you're on the ground because quite some, sometimes when you go as part of United Nations Peacekeeping Force, for example, you don't have the terms of reference to stop so many things that you would prefer to do to, to stop. You end up by building footpaths and walls if you're not careful. Mm. And so, but it does make a, a difference because locally a commander can take a decision that it, 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 it works with the situation. And so as much as you can train people before they go, but train, train people anyway because you don't know when they're going, say, in six months' time or six years' time. What, could it, what kind of thing could it mean, though, practically on the ground, preventing and responding? You respond to... I mean, 
quite often in small warfare, and most of the time this is small warfare, you know, it's not big tank maneuvers or anything like that, quite often, uh, just as a, I don't mean a stern hand or a stern look, it's more than that, but a threatening pose from a well-organized uh, and well-commanded patrol, even at that level, can actually deter certain actions, uh, which they may go elsewhere and commit the same atrocities, but it can have an effect. You are not going to clear the, the ground of warfare from from such terrible doings. Christopher, stay, uh, stay with us because we can talk now to Yasmin Suka, the Executive Director of the Foundation for Human Rights in South Africa and also Chair of the UN Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan. Yasmin, good to talk to you today. Uh, you reported to the UN Human Rights Council last September that more than 65% of women and girls in South Sudan have reportedly experienced sexual violence at least once in their lives. A shockingly high number. It's become normalised hazards in the country. Well, sexual violence has become normalized. And, you know, when we reported to the council in March this year, we actually drew a link between gender-based violence in peace times, you know, and also the low status that women enjoy in South Sudan. And we made the link with conflict-related sexual violence, which is really the mandate of the commission. And we pointed out that, in fact, because there's been so little accountability and mostly impunity for crimes of sexual violence, there really doesn't seem to be any way of stopping it. And so, you know, we, we've had endless discussions with the government around the questions of at least trying to put people on trial and holding them accountable. And so far in South Sudan, there have really only been three trials of note one which involved foreign aid workers last year, which did demonstrate that, in fact, the country, if they had the political will, they could actually do it. Now, granted, these were foot soldiers, but nevertheless, I think the message was sent. Um, and in fact, if you read our report this year, we speak about the fact that when the recruiting of young soldiers was being done this year, they were also promised that they could have access to women, they could abduct them and keep them as sexual slaves. Now, unless you're going to begin to look at addressing, um, you know, accountability for these who kinds ma- of Who makes crimes, those kind of promises? Well, commanders, when they're recruiting, because remember, we've moved from a high-intensity conflict to one that has become increasingly localized. Mm-hmm. And in the recruitment of forces in the Leech area last year, that we had a number of statements in which people actually confirmed that, in fact, this was part of the message. So when you match that up with the kind of conduct that is taking place, you have a pretty grim picture of how high and how intense the sexual violence is. And we're not talking about women being raped one time. There are multiple incidents of rape. Sometimes women are gang raped. And in fact, for many of the women, it's very hard to tell, um, you know, because there's such a continuum of violence. Mm. What do you think the best hope for change is? You mentioned there have been three trials. Um, do, is there a will from the government? Well, I think, you know, there are different levels. And, you know, our work began with the idea that we would collect and preserve evidence for to assist a, a prosecutor of a hybrid court for South Sudan that is supposed to be set up jointly by the government and the African Union. 
Now that court has been stalled since 2015 and it's likely to be stored even further because of the fact that the implementation of the revitalized peace agreement is also, um, you know, what I would say in the incubator at this point. So then we looked at the question of could you have military justice? And I think that, you know, we, we, if we could work with prosecutors there, um, I think that's a good possibility, at least of ensuring that where people are in the military, there can be some form of justice. And, you know, earlier in April this year, we had a discussion with the local courts as well as some of the lawyers and the government lawyers on how we could also use domestic systems mm. and also, you know, the plural system. Um, because often that is where most cases are being taken. But right. in that case, you also have a gender bias and defenses often which allow for women then to be given in exchange for crimes committed by one group against another. All and right. of course, in a country like, we've had a very promising judgment last week mm. where the court set aside the marriage of a young girl. Mm. Now, this is one of the issues that one also needs to tackle, right. underage marriages. Yasmin, well, there's so much more to talk about. I'd love to have you back on the programme again to have a progress update on this. Yasmin Suka, thank you for your time. That's Yasmin Suka, Chair of the UN Commission on Human Rights in South Sudan. Now, the Defence Secretary, Penny Mordaunt, has been outlining some of her plans for the armed forces at the Air and Space Power Conference. She says in future people could join the Royal Air Force to become an aviator or an astronaut, as she announced the RAF will supply a test pilot for a new private space venture. Science fiction is becoming science fact. And one day, I want to see RAF pilots earning their space wings and flying beyond the stratosphere. So today, I can announce that we're making a giant leap in that direction by working towards placing a test pilot into the Virgin Orbit programme, sending a bold signal of global Britain's aspiration and showing that if you join our RAF, you will join a service where you can become an aviator or an astronaut, where you will help push back the frontiers of space and create a launch pad to the stars. We're investing £30 million to launch a small satellite constellation within a year. These small, low-orbiting satellites can be sent into space more cost-effectively than their predecessors and can be fixed or replaced more quickly. The programme will eventually see live, high-resolution video beamed directly into the cockpit of our aircraft, providing pilots with unprecedented levels of battle awareness. And to support this state-of-the-art system, the RAF has founded Team Artemis, a transatlantic team of UK and US defence personnel to launch the Constellation and undertake research into wider military uses of small satellites. Well, listening to that was Christopher Lee, our defence analyst. Christopher, is space really the future then for the RAF? You'd think so, wouldn't you? Uh, well, it already is in a way, but i tell you something. If I, were in the, if I were running the RAF, I would say, right, tell people to come and join us and be pilots. Now, I can get pilots from any corner of any street in the United Kingdom tomorrow. What I can't get are techies. I can't keep a get people who do the first job of the Royal Air Force, and that's get, keep aeroplanes uh, flying. And that's the biggest problem. Uh, Artemis should be rather good. Wasn't Artemis a relation of Apollo? Mm. And Apollo's got a quite a distinguished record. And it sounds good. But the truth is, it's the people with spanners 
or whatever spanners are today, they're actually needed far more than anybody else in the Royal Air Force. And in fact, in most of the services in, in general, it's the technicians that keep the services running. Yeah, um, she also told our reporter at that conference, Penny Morton did, that uh, there will be announcements next week, um, presumably before the new Prime Minister is in post, uh, on pay and historic allegations against service personnel. Uh, she's just trying to get that in quickly in case she might not be in the job, do you think? Uh, well, I think she's probably trying to do that, but that's already been agreed that there should be something, especially on the, on the historic investigations, that people that uh, are being charged or being questioned about things that happened a long, long time ago, there should be a review on whether that, whether that should happen at all. Uh, it's a controversial thing, especially if you go to somewhere like Northern Ireland, where a lot of people saying, we was there, it happened to us, we demand uh, that there should be no... Uh, no, nobody gets let off, and that is that is the job of not perhaps the the defence secretary, who will support the idea of protecting people that served, say, 20, 30 years ago. But it really is one for the lawyers in the government. Now, Christopher, I know you're not a betting man, but this time... Certainly ne- not. <laughs> this, time next, on it. this time next week, who do you think the defence secretary will be? Defence secretary? Yes. That's a very bold question. I haven't even asked you question. about the Prime Minister, but that uh, seems to yeah. be a bit of a I'll dungeon. tell you who I'd give it to. I think I'd probably give it to Rory Stewart. Ah, well, yeah, it depends who the Prime you Minister is. It. Yeah, it depends who's but the I'd Prime Minister. Because You won't get it because I've got money on it. <laughs> That's all we have time for today. Have you got an opinion on anything in the programme? Send us a tweet at BFBS SITREP. Join us again at the same time next week. I'm Kate Chabot. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye for now.